Mic check, mic check, mic check. Hello, everybody. Uh-oh. Mic check one more time. All right, we're just going to be patient and let the Lord work this morning. We'll see what happens. Um, so this might be a little funny. So I was just talking to Pete Palmer right before I came up, and I was over there. My eyes was closed. And people said, like, I didn't want to disrupt your flow, man. I was like, man, I'm, I actually was catching some final Zs before... <laughs> I go up on stage. I didn't want to get people any kind of restlessness up here. So it would have been so spiritual if I said I was praying before I came up to preach. I was like, let me just be honest and radically, you know, honest with people because I'm, I'm sleeping. I'm really, really tired. So that's, that's, that's what I was doing right before I came up here. And now the sound is waking me up. It's wonderful to be here. Wonderful to be up here, as always. For those of you who don't know, my name is Jalen Baker. I'm a pastor resident here. Happy to serve and always an honor to preach here. We are in part two of the introduction to our Revelation, Revelation series, Letters to the, to the Churches. And uh, I cannot wait to see what God has for us this morning. You know, we've been on this sort of like thoughtfully engaged streak while we've been up here. I want to do something like kind of fun, thoughtfully engaged fun this week. Have y'all heard the new Beyonce song? You won't break my soul. You won't break my soul. You won't break my soul. I'm telling everybody. So I think it's fascinating that Beyonce sings this song because she's making kind of a spiritual proclamation. You won't break my soul, right? And I think it's interesting that Beyonce, an icon of the culture, is making this kind of proclamation because it seems like the culture is grasping at straws at trying to figure out how do we make it through this deeply divided, polarizing, toxic moment in the world. Just so war is happening. Just so many things are happening. And Beyonce says, you won't break my soul. Now, of course, for her, who knows what's behind that, right? But for us as Christians, thoughtfully engaging with that song, dancing to it, right? We can say, you won't break my soul because the God of my soul, right? The author of my soul will not allow anything to come against me in this world right? I just thought it was a fascinating, fascinating new single that Beyonce put out. Put out. I think it was last week. I've been jamming to it for the last couple of weeks, worshiping to it, should I say. I've been worshiping to it, should I say, thoughtfully engaging as a Christian. So I said, you know, we've been kind of doing some deep, thoughtful engagement. Let's do some fun, thoughtful engagement, and let's talk about Beyonce, you know, at, at the old Jacobs well. So I thought that was great. Um, <laughs> And with that, let's, let's dive into our text this morning. Um, let's, first of all, let's, let's go to God in prayer, and then we'll dive into our text. Lord God, we're just so thankful and we're grateful for you. God, we just have a zeal for you this morning. Thank you, God, just for everything, everything that you continue to do through us and with us in spite of everything that is happening in our lives. God, this morning, I pray that your word can speak directly to us. I pray that your word can speak directly to the things that are happening in our lives. God, I pray this morning that you bring clarity to, with your word, that we can see things more clearly through the power and truth of your word. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Amen, amen. So Scott got us started off last week talking about, the intro, talking about Revelation, right? He introduced us to John the Apostle and how Jesus, through an angel, is speaking to John quite literally revealing things to him, and, and John is now documenting this thing down. I think for this week, I want to dig into um, the genre of this book, 
right? I think it's very, very important for us to sort of really sit with the genre of revelation. And it's, 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 it's apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature, right? That's what it's known as. And apocalyptic literature is trying to do two things, church. Number one, it is trying to set our present moment and have us see it in light of unseen realities of the future, right? So the reality that Jesus is coming back. He will be here again. And because he's coming back, he's taking us to an eternal place, right? So now we can live in the reality that anything we face on earth, anything that we have to endure on earth, it's temporary. It is not eternal, right? And Revelation wants to push us to think on those terms. Living in, this pre- living in our present moment in light of unseen future realities. It's also trying to do something else. Number two, it's also trying to have us, li- it's also trying to set our present moment, have us live in this present moment in light of the unseen re- realities of our present. Right. And what's that saying? It's saying that we are spiritual beings. Right. Which means that when things are happening to us, it is there is more to what's happening to us than meets the eye. Things are more than what they might seem on the surface level. Right. So we have to learn to begin to see things through a spiritual framework. And Revelations is trying to unlock these realities. It's trying to get us to think past what we can see and beyond what we can see and look in the spiritual, right? So apocalyptic literature is trying to do those two things fundamentally. Another thing that's happening in Revelation is that John, really Jesus, is speaking to us through images, right? Through imagery. I think this is very, very important. Because the question becomes, why images? Why is he speaking to us through, through, through these very vivid images? Well, number one, when God speaks to us, there are times that images can present and convey God's word in better ways than propositional truths or just statements of truth, right? So there are times in the Bible where, 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 where we'll see um, 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 God just say things that this is true, this is true, this is true, where we just see God speaking. But in Revelations, he's revealing truth to us through images. And we're going to see our first image this morning is going to be an image of Jesus, right? And I, th- and, and, and I think God does this because when we see this image of Jesus, it is conveying to us very specific truths, and, and it allows us to take it in. It allows, and it allows us to truly have our vision of who Jesus is be transformed in very different ways than, we were, than when we're simply reading about Jesus. So the image of Jesus this morning is going to be very, very cool. And I want to say this too. When you zoom in on the cultural context of the audience and listeners of Revelation. Check this out. So in most great cities of the province of Asia, right, in in, in these Roman cities, there is imagery of the vision of the Roman world everywhere you go, 
right? So Rome has set up statues. They, they set up architectures, civic festivals and rituals, all kind of images that portrays how Rome sees fit that you should live your life. So these Christians are bombarded with these images everywhere they go. So Jesus says, I'm going to give you a counter image, right? So when you see a statue of Caesar, you have this image in your mind of me, right, with eyes set on fire, with a golden sash across my chest, with a robe that I'm wearing. You have this vivid image of who I am, right, when you look at Caesar. And now you know that you don't celebrate that statue, that image. You celebrate this image over here. I'm giving you a specific image of who I am, right? And when, and when you think about all these images that are bombarding you, now you have a counter image. Now you have a counter narrative. Now you can look to something else and say, and be reminded of who you really are. And be reminded that you don't worship Caesar. You don't worship anything in Rome. You worship me, the true king. And you worship my kingdom and my way. Right. So that's, that's, that's another reason why God, Jesus speaks to these churches in vivid images. Let's dive into the text. Verse 10. So we learn this morning that John, the person that's conveying these messages, is on an island called Patmos. And Patmos is an island that, 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 is, uh, that, that is made for prisons. We can think of I think in our, in our, I don't know if this is just law and order, but Rikers Island. I was, I was reminded of Rikers Island. Is, is that an actual prison place? Where prison, is, that, is that a place? Okay, great. I'm pretty sure I heard it on law and order. I don't, know, I don't know if it's actually real. So it could have been a fictitious prison that I just heard on law and order. Great. So Rikers Island. Um, so he was on an island called Patmos, right? And he says here, he's talking to the church and saying, I, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on an island called Pat- Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So we, we see here that he was sent to Patmos because of his witness of the gospel, right? It was illegal at the time to speak against any God, any king that was not Roman imperial majesty, right? So that's why John is now sent to prison. You know, what's actually, it was well, another fascinating thing is here, is this. In Roman prisons, right, prison, the, the prison guards and prison officials would censor letters that, was, that, that was sent out to the mainlands, right? So this means that John had to write in such a way that they would not read what he's saying and think it was blasphemy. So you can also see why he uses image, why Jesus uses images again, because if he was just saying like Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, they would read that and be like, whoa, 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 you can't, we can't send this back over to the mainland. But so he uses these images, and they're like, this dude is crazy, this dude is insane. He's talking about a dude with some some guy with fire in his eyes, some dude with bronze feet. He, he's like, send this letter out. Whoever wants to read it, God bless them. You know what I'm saying? Like, go ahead and read the letter, right? So there, there's, there's, sort of, there's sort of this covert actions, right, that Jesus is also doing in revealing these images to make sure that the message gets to his churches, gets to his people, right? I thought that was a very cool fact learning about this week. And, you know, when you think about the Apostle John here, 
What also has to be mentioned is that John looks at these churches. And he also understands that given the Roman imperial system, he knows that his brothers and sisters in Christ are being persecuted in every way, right? They're losing their homes. They're losing their jobs. They are being brutally harassed, at times even murdered because of their witness of the gospel, right? Which is why John says, I partner with you because here I am literally in jail for doing the same kinds of things. So John's saying, I see you, I hear you, I have a heart for you, but more importantly, I need you to know, fellow brothers and sisters, the Savior sees you. Jesus sees you. And I'm writing this letter to you to reveal to you what Jesus has shown me as an encouragement to you, right? To show you that even in the midst of your suffering, Jesus sees you. And we're going to get into exactly how he sees you. So the first thing John documents here, he says, I was in the spirit on the lowest day and I heard behind me a, a loud voice like a trumpet. I thought this was interesting. So when he said he was in the spirit, I went back to the black child like in the spirit. Was he a Pentecostal? Was he in there speaking in tongues? Was, was he listening to Kirk Franklin, Maverick City in there getting his praise on in the spirit? Wow, John, I see you out here. So I, that, that phrase just jumped out at me. So I was like, okay, so what does this actually mean? What does it mean to be in the spirit? So Tony Evans, pastor out of Dallas, Texas, puts it this way. He says, to be in the spirit means to look at the happenings and circumstances of your lives through a spiritual framework. Evans says, I love how he says this. He says, to be in the spirit means to be engulfed in a spiritual framework. What does this mean? This means, again, when you look at the circumstances of your life, you cannot look through them through a purely earthly lens. We cannot depend on our emotions and reactions to decide how we feel and operate, operate in the midst of our circumstances. Evan says something like this, too. I love how he says, he says, you know, your emotions and your feelings don't have intellect. That's what he says. He says that you cannot let your emotions and feelings, which are purely reactive, be the ultimate deciding factor in how you navigate a situation, right? But you have to allow the gospel and the biblical truth and, prim and principles of the Bible to wholly frame your framework and the lens you have and how you're navigating your life. Because when you are engulfed in a spiritual framework, you are allowing the wisdom of God, you are allowing the, 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 the power of God to lead you and to guide you and to reveal to you the truth that is happening in your life. God is saying that I know exactly what's going on. And if you listen to me, if you follow me, I will show you the way. I will show you, show you how I'm working everything out for your good. When you are in the spirit, the spirit will set you free. So we have to be engulfed in a spiritual framework 
asking God, asking Jesus, Jesus, I see how I feel. I'm naming what's happening, but how are you calling me to live? How are you calling me to navigate this? How are you calling me to truly, truly live into your will for my life right here, right now? Because the will of God in our lives never stops. Not, not, in, not in bad circumstances, not in good circumstances. It never stops, right? And go for ourselves in a spiritual framework. John keeps going. He says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And this is where it gets interesting. So John, and this, I, I love this. John on this island of Patmos, right, on this island of loneliness, this island of, 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 of punishment and banishment, John, even in the midst of this, has lived into a spiritual reality where he's learning, he's understanding, and he's receiving new life and fresh perspective from Jesus, right? What does it say? For many of us, I don't know what it might be. We might be on our own island of Patmos where we feel like just that things are just not going the way they should be going in our lives. But let John be a representation and say that even on an island of Patmos, God does not abandon you. God does not leave you. He does not forsake you. He is with you always, right? And we see this with John. Because John was in the spirit, because he saw everything he was going through, through a spiritual framework, he saw Jesus. He, saw, he literally saw Jesus. He saw God. He allowed Jesus to come into his life and show him the way. And, and, and show him a way in such a way that not only is he being set free spiritually, but he's going to be used now as a vessel to set other people free spiritually, right? Now, what Jesus has revealed to him is not going to be revealed to the other churches. So that's one thing that we have to also, we have to also realize. So John says, I heard a voice behind me that was loud as a trumpet. So it's like John all of a sudden was thrusted into a Bruce Springsteen concert, right? He's, he's, he, this is loud voice in his ears, right? And it's worth noting that we should not dismiss that this voice was in his head, that this voice, that he was just hearing things, because the text clearly says that his body turns, right? He heard something and his body responded to it, right? Um, I heard something behind me, a loud voice like a trumpet, and, 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 and that means that something outside of him was calling to him. And what does this voice say? Voice says, write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, right? And, 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 and Jesus reveals to him now that these seven churches are going to be these churches. I'm not going to say all of them because I can't say all of them correctly. Um, but these are the seven churches. And we're, and we're going to talk about these churches throughout the series here, right? Then I turned to see the voice. His body turned. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. lampstands. And later on, it's going to be revealed to John that these seven lampstands, these seven lampstands are 
representative of those seven churches, right? Let's keep going. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, in the midst of the lampstands, he saw one like a son of man. Now, he's referencing Daniel and the vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7, I believe, 7.13. But what, what I love about this is this. So these lampstands represent, represent the seven churches. And John says, I saw among them Jesus the Christ. What does it say? It says that when Jesus in the future is, is, is dictating and sending messages to these churches, Jesus is going to be able to say to all these churches, I know. I know. Because I have been in the middle. I have been in the trenches with you, not forsaking you, not abandoning you. I've been right here in the middle with you. And I see you. I know you've been struggling. I know you've been fearful. I know you've been afraid. I know you've been working hard. Right? And Jesus is able to say, I see you in it all. It's, 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 it's grand news because Jesus is saying, I have not been above you looking down on you. I have not been outside looking in. I've literally been in the middle of it the entire time. And what a great Savior we have. The fact that we can say that in our lives, Jesus is in the middle of it. He's in the middle of our marriages. He's in the middle of our relationship with our children. He's in the middle of our relationships, whether it be friendships or family members. He's in the middle of our relationship with our coworkers or our, our, our classmates at school or at work. He's in the middle of it all, which means that he sees the particular ways in which we might be struggling, we might be frustrated, we might be annoyed. He says, I'm right here. I have not left your side. I've been here the entire time. And because I have a lay of the land, guess what? I know the way out. I know how to set you free. So if you just trust and follow me. If you just ask for my help consistently, I will lead you and I will guide you because I've been in the middle of it the entire time. Among them, in the midst of those lampstands, one like a son of man was in the middle. He was in, the, he was in their midst. It says he was clothed with a long robe. What does this mean? So, in that time, anyone who was clothed in a long robe usually was a priest, right? So it represents that Jesus is this priest. But since Jesus is wearing this long robe, right, he actually wants to remind the people that he's not simply a priest. He's the great high priest, right? We learned about this a little bit in Hebrews. And since he is this great high priest, what does this mean? It means that Jesus is this ultimate bridge builder, right? He's this bridge between humanity and God. He came because there was this great chasm between humanity and God. Our sinful nature just made us rebel against God. It, it, it drove us away from God. And God did not see fit that this relationship between himself and his children 
would stay the same. So what does he do? He sends his son, Jesus, to stand in the gap, to be the great high priest, to be the ultimate reconciler, holding the hand of humanity and holding the hand of God, bringing the two together so that we can be reconciled. So that we can be set free, so that so so that we can be so that, so that we can come back into right relationship with God. So Jesus, as a great high priest, set us free from our sin. And, 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 and the question becomes, why does he remind these churches of this? Here's why. Jesus is saying, I see that you're frustrated by your persecution. I can see why you, 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 you may grow weary in resisting the Roman Empire and following me, but you have to remember what's on the line, right? You have to also remember what you have been set free from, right? You've been set free from sin and have lived into a new spiritual life that grants you access to the kingdom of God and access to eternity. Right. And the other option is sinful life and eternal damnation. So therefore, he's saying, remember that I am the great high priest and also remember what you've been set free from. Remember what the stakes are. I'm reminding you that your hard work, your persecution is not in vain. It's not in vain. Right. And remember also that I also suffered the same similar persecution for my father's kingdom. That I walk alongside you in this, in, in this thing, telling you, shaping you, molding you, advising you. Because if I did it, and because I did, you can too. You will too, by the power of my spirit. So, that, so that, that's why he wants to remind them of, of his great high priesthood. And then he says, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. You know, this is kind of random, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, when I read this this week, I met a brother last week. I think I see him actually. Brandon. I think I see him. He's right there. So Brandon last week had a fanny pack around his chest. So when I read this, I was like, yo, did Jesus have a fanny pack around his chest? Could you imagine? Then I was like, I wonder what he would put in his fanny pack. Would he put like two loaves of fit, two loaves of bread and like fish or something like that, carry it around just case somebody was hungry? You know what I'm saying? He had to feed a few thousand people. Then I was like, no, the fish would be overwhelming smell wise, so that probably wouldn't work. So what could he else get? would he be carrying? Carpeting tools. So I just went down a rabbit hole. So I thought about Jesus wearing a, go, a, a fanny pack around. But that, that's not what this is talking about. That's not what this is talking about. But I don't know why. I, I saw the, I saw the brother last week with a fanny pack around his chest, and that's why that's, that was my first thing. Um, you know, it's actually kind of interesting what this is about. So in that, time, in that cultural context, right, when a person would wear a belt around their waist, it would signify, similar to us actually, that a person was preparing to go to work, right? It would signify that a person was ready to complete a task. And then when they, when they finished that task, they would then reposition that belt and put it around their chest. Right? This is what they did back then. So the fact that Jesus has this, has this, 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 this sash or this belt around his chest signifies that, he, signifies that his work on the cross is a finished work. 
right? That he was the final and ultimate sacrifice. So when he was doing his ministry, his belt or sash was positioned around his waist. And as he was going to the cross, dying for our sin, still around his waist. As he's dying on the cross for our sins, atoning, atoning for our sins, being the ultimate sacrifice, belt is still around his waist. As he goes to the grave, puts in the grave, his belt is still around his waist. But when he gets up, when he resurrects, it's now repositioned. It's now around his chest. To signify that the finished, that this is, I am the finished work of the cross. I've done everything for you to have a life right now and for you to have life in eternity. Right? So that's what that signifies. Finished work. Then it goes on to say, the hairs of his head were like, were white, like white wool. I was like, so they call, uh, so is John trying to call Jesus old? You know what I'm saying? He's trying to call him like an old man something, hair like white. That's what I thought about. But what this actually signifies is that it signifies the agelessness of Christ, right? It signifies the, the ways in which, like, kind of like, like, like we learned last week, that Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, right? He's quite literally seen it all. And because of his agelessness, it speaks to his eternal wisdom, right? It speaks to his eternal discernment. It speaks to how nothing can catch our Savior by surprise because he's literally seen and lived through it all, which speaks to how we can put our trust in him, right? Because whatever is happening in our life, Jesus is like, I've seen it before. I've witnessed it before. Here it is. I've gotten followers of mine through this before. So you can rest assured that even though it's hard, even though it's difficult, I got you. I have you. I see you. I've been doing this for quite literally centuries. And I promise you, I will get you through this, right? It also speaks to the holiness of Christ, right? It speaks to how Christ is pure, which speaks to his sinlessness when he says like snow, like, like, like how he makes us, he, he wipes our sins, make, make us white as snow. It speaks to Christ. He's inherently a pure creature. He's sinless and altogether holy. And then we get to this part. I also want to say, right, like how John sees Jesus in this way. And I want you to notice how he uses the word like, right? He says, where does it start? The hairs of his hair were like white wool. Like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. You can see John grasping for language to describe what's happening, right? Because you can imagine he sees these eyes. He's like, I guess they like fire. He sees these feet. They're like burnished bronze. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's so otherworldly what he's seeing that he's, he's, he's grasping for adjectives to describe what he's seeing, what is actually happening, right? So it, 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 I feel like that's, that's, that's a very interesting thing. So he, 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 the next thing he says, his eyes were like a flame of fire, right? What does this mean? So it means that Jesus is not only pure, but he's also purifying, right? He purifies, right? So 
These, these eyes of Jesus, they can be, they, it can sound pretty scary, actually. These eyes will flame with fire, right? It's fire because fire illuminates and penetrates, but it also burns and it cleanses. So when Jesus looks at us, he sees through all the facades. He sees through all of, of, of the mask that we may wear. He sees through all of that, and he sees the messiness of our lives. He sees the mess and he looks through it and says, I see you're a mess, but I don't say this to shame you. I say this because I can burn it away. I say this to say because I can make you new. And it's a reminder to, the, to these churches that when Jesus is looking at you, He's looking at you in a judgmental way at times, right? And at times it is meant to be scary because, again, Jesus is reminding you of what the stakes are. If you're not living your life for me, if you're selling out for me, these eyes are going to judge you in the end. And if push comes to shove, anyone who is not accepted me or has lived for me will be eternally damned, right? And it's like, fam, I am trying to remind you of what the stakes are, but remember, the alternative is life, everlasting life, here on earth as it is in heaven, right? So yeah, this is meant to be a little scary, maybe even a lot scary. Alan is doing something in the back. I was really interested. A lot scary. Did you know, I, 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 it is meant to be a lot scary, but what I find when I look at this, right, I see this as fair. I see God judging us fairly. You know what I'm saying? I see God saying that I'm going to, like, I've done so much. I'm your creator. I'm the author of your soul. I've given up everything to save your life. I've literally done all for you. And all I ask you to do is to say yes, obey, accept and live your life for me, right? I feel like given, like, I feel like God has done ex exponentially more than he asked of us, right? I, so I, I see it as being, being very, very fair, actually. Uh, but it is, it, is meant to, it is meant to scare a little bit, though, or a lot, according to Alan. And then it goes on to say his feet were like burnished bronze, right? And this is an interesting one, right? Because this, 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 this is meant to say that his feet were burnished bronze, and it's meant to sort of speak to his stability and his immovability, right? When I, was, when I was looking at this this week, I was reminded of Jesus in the wilderness when he was tempted 40 days and 40 nights. During that time, the, the devil was tempting Jesus with all kinds of stuff from the world, and the Savior was unmoved, right? He, he was tempted but he was, he was unmoved. He, he was stable and unwavering and standing on the truth of God's word because he understood full well, the world cannot offer me what the kingdom can offer me. And, and because I am a representative of this kingdom, I will always stay immovable and stable. And, and, I, and I think Jesus says this because he wants to say to the church that I am a stabilizing force. 
that when you turn to me and when you look to me, I will stabilize you. When things are chaotic in your life, look to me. Look to the way I lived. Look to the way I walked in the world. And you'll see that I was this stable, immovable object when it came to temptation and when it came to the will of God. So again, to these churches, you're going to be tempted. You're going, you, 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 you're, going to, you're going to be swayed in some ways by the world, by the, by the Roman Empire. But be immovable. Be like me. And then it says, his voice was like the roar of many waters. So many people will be going to the Jersey Shore tomorrow, I assume. I haven't been because they make you pay to go to the beach, and I'm, I have an ethical dilemma going to that, because it's like, this, that's God's creation, and y'all making me pay for it? That's, I, don't, I, don't, I just, Jersey, y'all tripping with that. So you know what I'm saying? I still haven't made my way there. But maybe, maybe, maybe I'll go tomorrow. We'll see. My friend and I were talking about it. So, um, but I have been to a beach before that was free. Um, and when, when, you, when you go to the beach, right, and you hear, the, and you, and you hear those waters, what, what can happen when you hear the waves of the water cascading over rocks, it can drown out the noise that's around you, where your, your ears are keenly attuned to the water, to the waves, right? And Jesus is saying here that when you hear my voice, if you're attentive to my voice, if you seek me and listen to me, it will drown out the noise, right? It will drown out the distractions. And what it will also do, like the beach can do at times as well, it will give you peace. It will fill you with peace and quiet. And this is important for these churches because Jesus is saying that if you listen to my voice, peace is still possible. Because your peace is not determined by your circumstances. It's determined by me. Again, when you engulf yourself in a spiritual framework and you're seeing things through the guise of the spirit in heaven, you have access to all of the gifts, resources, and blessings that heaven has to offer, one of them being peace, right? And then the last thing John says about Jesus here, about his where, keep continuing on, go to verse, I think we're on verse 16, Andy, I think. There we go, let's keep going. He says, in his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth. Oh, let's, let's stop right there. In his hand, he held, and I, I think this is fascinating. So at this time, in the first century, Seven stars represented the seven planets that they knew about at the time, right? So these seven stars represent seven planets. And it was believed at the time that these seven planets actually held sway over life, right? So people believed that these planets determined life and death sometimes, and that you can get power from these planets. So at the time, people would consult astrologers and astrology tables, and, and, and you also note at the time, too, that Roman emperors and, and, and Roman, Roman, Roman officials, they would surround their thrones with stars and planets, dictating that they were the gods or the lord of the cosmos, right? And, 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 and even in Greek religion, there's a Greek goddess named Hecate, and she says that I am the beginning and the end, and she says that in her right hand, she holds the seven stars. So you can see again, Jesus doing what? Providing a counter image. That's what he's doing, right? He's saying that don't believe in the emperors. Don't believe in the, the Greek religion, Hakate, the goddess Hakate. 
I am the Lord of the cosmos. I am the author and finisher of life. It is me, right? So when you, when you see all of these images and pictures, remember that in my right hand, I hold the seven stars, not anyone else. I'm the Lord of the cosmos, right? So he, he, he's continuing to give his people images that will counter what they're seeing in the culture. Then he says, and his face was, was like the sun shining in full strength. Again, John's just grasping at words, right? So, so he, he probably couldn't describe how bright his face was, so he chooses the, 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 maybe the biggest wonder of, of light in, 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 the, in, in, in the earth, which is the sun, right? Or the sun shining down on earth. And then it gets good. I love this part. We're almost to the finish line here. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. You know why I love this part, church? I think that this can give us a glimpse of what our future will be like, right? When we see Jesus, right, face to face, when we're in eternity, right, I can imagine myself being like John. After seeing the wonder of who Jesus is, I just fall out. I fall to my face in awe, inspired. Just not having any kind of category of how I should react. So he just falls to his face as if he were dead. I imagine that that's how we're going to be like one day when we see our Savior face to face. And then the next part is even better. He says, when I fell, so I was dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. The same right hand, my God that holds the seven stars, lays his hand on me to comfort me and says, fear not, do not be afraid, right? The wonder of that, right, 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 right. Like Jesus, he is such a gentle king, my God. He's such a gentle savior. He's, he literally just said, I'm the Lord of the cosmos. I am the king of the world. I rule the earth. Yet I'm going to drop down, get on your level, lay my hand on you, and I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to be with you, right? The gentleness of our Savior. And he says, where we at? Go back up one more time. Go back up real quick, Andy. Go back up. He says, fear not. I am the first and the last. Go down now. And the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hate. So, so he says, John, do not be afraid. Number one, because I'm right here, right? Don't be afraid because I'm right here with you. And he says this, also, do not be afraid because you have no reason to fear. Why is that? Because I have already entered into the gaping jaws of the greatest enemy that exists for you. Right. The, the, the power that threatens to undo you in every single way. I let it have its way with me when I was on the cross. Right. I let death hold me captive just for a little while. Then I burst out of that prison of death. And now I hold the keys to death and everlasting life. So you have no reason to fear. Fear does not belong in your vocabulary, John, because I've stolen.
stolen every ounce of power fear has over you because even though they might persecute you, even though they might talk about you, even though the world might, 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 might make you feel weird or make you feel like an outcast, know that I have created a kingdom where you belong holistically. I have created a kingdom where you can feel like your status is never in vain. Your status will always be one where you are worthy of dignity, worthy of value, worthy of purpose because you belong to God and not to the world. And because of this, John, you have no reason to fear. Because of this church, you have no reason to fear. It does not mean life won't be hard. It does not mean trials won't come our way. But it does mean that you can rest assured that victory is yours. Victory is yours in the end, in eternity, and victory is yours right now. Why is victory, why is victory yours right now? It's yours right now because, because you have this spiritual framework that you're living by. It means that you're able to have life. You're able to have joy. You're able to have peace in the midst of any circumstance. That's the good news. Because you're living in the spirit. And, 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 and I think we have to be intentional here, church, in thinking about, you know, I'm struggling to, to, to live in the spirit. And this is where I think community, again, comes in play. Lean on your brother or sister in Christ and say, you know, I've been struggling to be in the spirit. I, I, I can't call to, to memory any, any scripture that's speaking to me right now. I, 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 I feel so alone right now. Can you help me? And God uses people to help us through it. God uses people to invigorate our spirit so that we can live in the spirit. And, and, and I also want to say that even in the mundaneness of your life, in the things that you may say, ah, this doesn't really matter to God. God doesn't care about this. No, remember where he is. He's in the middle. He's in the middle of your life which means that he sees all the things that's frustrating you, all the things that's annoying you, all the things that's, that, that's causing you just, 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 just turmoil in, some, in many ways. And he says, I'm right here. Just ask me for help, and I will lead you, and I will guide you into freedom, right? And, and, and Jesus gives these seven churches this image of himself, to remind them that they have not lost. The world will trick you into thinking just because you're going through a lot of stuff, just because you're being persecuted, that you've lost. But you do not live on the world's paradigm. You live through a heavenly and spiritual paradigm, which means that you cannot lose. They don't have that much power over you to lose. There's only one who has that power, and that's God. So as long as you're in that spiritual paradigm, as long as you are engulfed in that spiritual framework, God is going to shape and mold 
all of the circumstances in your life, and he's going to allow you to see them the way he sees them. He's going to create newness. He's going to create, he's going, he's, going to, he's, he's going to apply the power of the resurrection to your life so that you can live in the spirit, not in the world, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, because it is a spirit that will set you free. And it closes out, 19 and 20. Let's go down one more, Andy. He says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, that you saw in my right hand, in the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches, right? So Jesus is setting Paul, not Paul, he's setting John up to say that for the, for the duration of the rest of this book, I'm going to literally speak through you to those seven churches. Give them this first image of me, They'll know what it means. They'll know what it signifies. And they need this image to counter what what they're saying. And now I'm going to speak directly to all of their circumstances. I'm going to speak directly to their context, right? So he's setting them up for that. In closing, and the worship team can come up up now. Church, I want us to always remember that We have to always look at our present circumstances, right, in light of the unseen realities of the future and the present, right? Live as if we know that we have a promised eternity that we're going to. And live as if we know that heaven has broken through to earth and Feels us by the power of the Spirit every day that gives us life everlasting, that gives us spiritual resources that allows us to live, and I mean really live, every single day. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for revelation. Thank you for this book, and we thank you for just divine revelation in general. God, we're thankful that you have chosen to to, to love us, even when we didn't deserve it, to to dwell among us, even when we feel like we can't feel you. But God, we're thankful that you're there. And because you are there always, God, we can trust and believe that you know the way. You know the way to our freedom. You know the way... To, to, to our liberation, and you know the way to, to, to live. And I mean truly live, God. And for that, we're grateful. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen.